This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook, arts writer for localexpress.ca. And I'm Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. My blog is called Flaw in the Iris, and you can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. Today we're doing something a little different on the show. Normally we take a look at a movie that's new in theaters and connect it to some movies from the past that uh, have similar topics or or actors or other artistic uh, contributions. But uh, today we're going to do something a little different. Uh, we're going to dive into uh, the list that uh, Roger Ebert left behind of, of the movies that he felt were the great movies. And we're going to kind of take a couple of those titles and dance around a little bit. This is this is more the all tangent edition of Lends Me Your Ears. It's it's a, it's a bit of an experiment, but I'm really looking forward to this. So Roger Ebert, uh, you know, maybe the biggest name in film criticism in the last 30 years. Uh, you know, I, he's certainly the guy I grew up with in terms of of the guy most present he and and uh, Gene Siskel in their TV show but but also for his writing and certainly in the internet age uh, a lot of Roger Ebert's reviews became available I actually spent my teens in the UK and there was a show there called uh, film like 87 or film 88 film 89 they, they changed the name of it every year and the host was one guy named Barry Norman and he was amazing like he could get to the core of a film what he liked about it what he didn't like about it very quickly and he he had this this TV show but but I didn't pay so much attention to him in terms of his his writing in print but uh, once I I got to North America and uh, started watching Siskel and Ebert. That was that was the the show that I paid the most attention to, and uh, and Roger Ebert was uh, you know as time went on became more and more important. And I realized the thing about him that I liked so much as as a film fan was that he had an incredible depth of knowledge about film. Like he really knew the ins and outs of filmmaking uh, from an. I mean, he could he was he was as good as any academic in terms of understanding the the history of film and uh, the technology and the particulars around filmmaking and storytelling in a visual medium, but he was very accessible. Anyone could read one of his his reviews, whether you knew a lot about film or not, and get a sense of how he felt about it. Um, and I, I really appreciated that. I always liked that about him, uh, you know, more than uh, Pauline Kael, for instance, or or some of some of the other more uh, you know, heavier uh, uh, film writers. So, so that's that's what I liked about about him. And I still miss his his view on films. Every once in a while, I'll I'll watch a movie and I'll I'll go. You know, I wonder what Roger might have thought of this. And uh, and yeah, and and yeah, his his great movies list uh, is uh, I guess more than one book uh, collecting what he thought were were the great movies. And uh, and they're they're a real real joy still to have. Yeah, I I certainly uh, grew up watching his show with uh, with Gene first on a PBS where it was called Sneak Previews I think, and then uh, it uh, became uh, Siskel and Ebert at the movies in syndication, where I think it was Disney actually produced it. They they uh, it was kind of a weird thing. You know, people got up in arms that Disney was, but I mean they produced and distributed TV shows. What are you going to do? Uh, they all have connections to studios and things, and it didn't affect their reviews any, I don't think. And, um, you know, of course, when they, they'd appear on chat shows uh, from time to time, and you'd, the gloves would come off a little bit more uh, than they would necessarily on the syndicated show, and you'd see a bit more of their, their kind of um, 
combative nature come out. I mean, there there were true Chicagoans, I guess, uh, in 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 that sense, and that that kind of informed uh, what they you know. There's a scrappiness about you know about those reviews as well as that knowledge and passion and and uh, and yeah. I don't know when I started reading his stuff in print, um, but I did love the way that. Uh, you know, there was there was a love for films from all periods going in there, as well as you know, world cinema and underground cinema that that uh, informed it. And of course, as you mentioned, uh, never talked down to readers, and also didn't talk over their heads. That that uh, that you know, he had some very basic precepts about the films. You know what films need to accomplish to to be deemed worthy. You know, like does it take me somewhere I'd never been before? Um, you know, is the film more interesting than a documentary about the actors in the film having lunch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remember that. I it totally was, forgot. Was one of, one of those weird kind of rules, you know, and uh, and, and you know, so, and he, he, you know, and I think he tended to take things on a film by film basis. You mentioned Pauline Kael, and uh, she had a lot of weird prejudices and alliances and things that I think kind of uh, undermined some of her writing. I, I like uh, her writing, but but. There is there there is kind of a bit of a snooty cinephilistic tone about it from time yeah. to time. But I think that was the tone of a lot of. But uh, yeah, she's writing of, for the New Yorker of so. the era. Yeah, certainly going back to to the sixties and seventies. Uh, I feel like it's. I feel like the internet has democratized a lot of things. But Ebert also, I think, just in his tone, made made uh, you know everyone he I guess he made people well people like myself realize that everyone can have an opinion it's good to have an informed opinion and a, a well-spoken one but but uh, the film film is so universal it's we all can can uh, participate in talking about it and sharing our our feelings on it so so yeah this is what I liked about him and and uh, and and yeah to get back to our little project today in our podcast we're breaking the uh, <clears throat> breaking the the format, so to speak, because they, today we're not talking about a film that is in cinemas right now. We went back to have a look at Ebert's list. So he has a, it's a long list of films on his great movies list. Uh, many of them I haven't seen. Most of them I know of, if even if I haven't seen them. But uh, but it's it's a great list. And and you know it was your suggestion that we should watch some of these. Some of them may we may not have seen before. But what a great uh, excuse to yeah, exactly. dig in and see some of these ones that he recommended. Uh, now, the first one, we got three on our plate today. Uh, the first one is one I had seen before, but not for many, many years, and it's called Wings of Desire from 1987. Um, the original title in German is Der Himmel über Berlin, which I think means the sky or heaven over Berlin. And I think that's a title I actually like a little better. I, I When I was in Berlin on a visit, I walked uh, into part of town where they had, uh, or a shop, I saw a shop that had posters, movie posters from German films, and they had the Wings of Desire, the German film poster in there. I almost bought it because it was gorgeous and huge. And yeah, in the original title, Der Himmel über Uber Berlin. Um, but yeah, uh, Wim Wenders, sort of at the peak of his, of his um, powers, he's a filmmaker who has had, uh, you know, he, he's, he's been making films since I think the early seventies and, uh, and I, and he's made many, many films that I haven't seen, but, uh, but certainly I think I've seen the ones that are most well-regarded. Uh, my favorite, probably Paris, Texas, uh, where he went to the United States and he did this sort of road movie. He was fond of making road movies in the seventies and he did, he did sort of, you know, the, the 
individual in the landscape. And from from my money, uh, Paris, Texas is the most wonderful balance of like the story of these these people uh, living somewhere, sort of lost and alone. And 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 the film becomes as much about the landscape and the music as it does, and the cinematography, as it does about the characters. And uh, and that's what I love about Paris, Texas. But but uh, Wings of Desire is also a really special, special film. And uh, it's about angels who watch over people in their, uh, people, average people, all sorts of people in in uh, in Berlin. Uh, and this is made a couple of years before the, the fall of the wall. So Berlin has a certain look about it. And uh, the cinematography here by... Henri L. Can, who was in his 70s, I believe, when he shot this. He also shot uh, Jean Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. Um, Which is amazing to think about. Yeah. That, you, that, that connection. Totally. Um, one of the most beautiful films ever made. Yeah, and, and I mean, Wings of Desire is extraordinarily beautiful. There's a lot of, the camera seems to float in these scenes. And 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 it comes, it comes in from the sky, this feeling of like, people being watched over by these angels is 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 very well communicated by the way the camera moves from from above the first shots are from sort of the clouds looking down at the city and then slowly comes closer and closer to see people and and you see these angels who are invisible other than to people who are suffering or to children and uh, they're offering a little bit of counsel a little bit of help to uh to, to people who are going through stuff. And we hear through narration and through voiceover, we hear what people are dealing with and how these these angels help them. And uh, one of them, played by Bruno Gans, with, who is a wonderful actor, um, he, uh, he starts to feel like he's too distant from people and he wants to experience human experience. He wants to to be down. He wants to, to have a cup of coffee. He wants to feel pain. He wants to feel happiness. He wants the eternal to stop. He wants to have a mortal experience. So that's more or less what the film is about. He falls in love with a with a with a woman who is a trapeze artist and immediately, well at first he tries to help her with her her problems, but uh, at a certain point, he realizes that that he wants to be able to interact with her. So, so uh, yeah, and it's it's in this beautiful sepia tone, black and white, which changes into wonderful color when yes. the film is told from the perspective of human beings. And, uh, and of course, as an extra bonus, we get Peter Falk, yeah. <laughs> who shows up as an uh, you know he's he's playing himself. Uh, acting in a film, a World War II era film that's being shot in Berlin, and uh, you know over the course of the film, he he you see that he feels the presence of the angels in a more profound way, and uh, to say more than that would be to give it away. But uh, but you know his, you know he provides this kind of through line of humanity in the film, the sort of connection between Earth and Himmel, which I know is heaven because I remember reading an old Sergeant Rock. Uh, comic books, <laughs> you know, the Germans were always going, God in Himmel, right. you know, God in heaven. You know, right. it, was, it was like, you know, the, one of the, the German, instead of German curse words, instead of going Scheiße, they was, like, you know, God in Himmel and all this kind of thing. And that's how I learned German um, uh, interjections and things. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but uh, you know, and I remember, I, I think this is probably the first Vin Vendors film I ever saw. I did see it at Wormwoods when it came out. And uh, I saw it again a few years later, uh, again in 35 millimeter. Um, Cause I think they just had a thing where they just brought back a bunch of their favorite films. It might've been around the time that their founder, uh, Gordon Parsons passed away and they, they, they showed a bunch of his favorite films. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stalker by Tarkovsky was another one. And they got a hold of the 35 millimeter print of that. So I got to wow. see, uh, see that on a big screen. 
which is a real treat. And that's actually recently been restored. And I look forward to re-experiencing that one. But 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 this one made a huge impact on me at the time. And it was for a long time, it was in my top, like, you know, I'd, I'd had this list I carry around in my brain of my top 10 favorite movies, and this was one of them. I don't know that it still has that status, but it's certainly an all-time favorite just because uh, at the time that I saw it, I don't know that I'd seen anything quite so, you know, philosophical um, expressed on screen that that this, uh, you know, you really do feel like you're floating above Berlin and, and you know, flying next to the angels. Uh, and it's not asking you to believe in in God or, or what it's not, you know, it's not impinging this theology on you. It's more of a, what if kind of scenario, but it does kind of establish these angels as these kind of eternal creatures that are, that are watching, that are gently nudging, you know, that, cause obviously they can't have too much direct influence in our lives and, and trying to provide some sort of comfort, you know, at least instill the concept that you're not alone. Um, in, uh, in lonely souls who may or may not take that advice as we see during the course of the film. You know, and I like that kind of pastoral nature of it. Um, you know, the, the later Terrence Malick films are kind of more like that. Yeah, it's true. Um, there's, there's, there's a bit of that in Days of Heaven, which I think I saw around the same time, but not to the extent that there is in, in his more recent films. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I was really taken with that idea that the film can, can alternate between this kind of divine and earthly realms uh, in the course of the film. I, I feel like the, the switching between black and white and color may be an homage to a film by Michael Powell called um, A Matter of Life and Death. Yeah, yeah, I think um, it might be. Or or as and more literally called Stairway to Heaven in uh, the US. Um, that's the American title, which uh, was dropped, you know, when it finally got restored and reissued. Um, but the Stairway to Heaven thing is interesting because it points to the fact that uh, um, I believe heaven is in black and white and earth is in color in the film. And that's, uh, and uh, this is kind of, takes that uh, that extra step in this film so I, I, it's probably pretty obvious and 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 Gans is amazing he just has that that kind of wide open face mm-hmm. he's so um, compassionate yes as the alien as the alien as the <laughs> as the angel <laughs> and uh, he he and then his transformation later in the film is is wonderful he he just the the sort of stateliness of his face changes in a way that is is all due to his his performance and it's pretty great yeah i mean he's very much a humanist director i think um, um, you know vendors really seems to sympathize with real people we'll talk about another film of his in a moment um also with gans where um you know he has a lot of compassion for for that character if maybe not some of the other ones but um you know, th- this film is is such a a marvel, and you you have you do have to be in the right mood for it. I think I, I rewatched it uh, in uh, getting ready for this uh, podcast, and and um, uh, I wasn't feeling great. <laughs> you know, I had a bit of an injury recently, and I was, uh, you know, uh, only not not taking anything stronger than Advil and, and a glass of scotch, but it seemed to kind of put me in the mood to watch this film and mm-hmm. and get a little spiritual lift from it in, in a way like i i think like when i i think when i first saw it i probably went to see it because nick cave is in it you know that was like the big draw was that you get to see nick cave and the bad seeds on a, on a big screen and of course they, they only show up like towards the very very end of the film um the angel and and also the trapeze artist uh keep going to this kind of old hotel turned into a nightclub where these kind of goth bands play and, yeah and uh that was that was a highly touted feature of the film uh, at the time that it came out it's it's one that's not so prominent now when when people talk about it, but it's it's a nice little nod to the, the time 
the place and time uh, that it came out. But, um, you know, that might have been the draw for me to see it back then. But then, of course, uh, I just got drawn into this whole other world of possibility for films. And, and at a time when I was just only starting to see films from other countries and, and subtitled movies and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, this really drove home how wonderful they can be and how, how they can approach subjects in ways that uh, North American filmmakers might not necessarily. Yeah, and I, I think maybe looking out, we were recording this in uh, in the middle of November. It's been a pretty gray wet week and this is a film that feels like the the visuals in the film feel very recognizable and uh, and relatable also that interesting thing about that nick cave I, i've been thinking a lot lately about leonard cohen uh and uh this film feels like it could have been scored by him uh you know it's it's uh, cave is probably the next best thing but there's a lot of poetry in this film uh, literally and figuratively and gravelly german voiceovers uh and you hear the echo of war here there's there's a lot of um, stock footage as well, going back to World War II, That's right. uh, and uh, and this feeling of the war still being very present in people's lives, um, all under the shadow of the U-Bahn. You know, uh, um, <laughs> I, I just. Uh, I, I love the way the film was shot, the way the camera moves there. The one one scene, the camera moves uh, down a bridge, sort of floats along a bridge to a scene of a car accident and just kind of revolves around the car accident around a, a man who's sitting there dying and the visitation by the angel. Um, and, uh, yeah. And, and I, I also wanted to mention, um, Ebert's remarks on the film. He concluded his review of wings of desire by saying it's one of those movies, uh, that movie critics are accused of liking because it's esoteric and difficult. But for him, uh, the film is like music or landscape. It clears the space in my mind. And in that space, I can consider questions. Some of them are asked in the film. Why am I me and why not you? Why am I here and why not there? When did time begin and where does space end? Yeah, these are pretty heavy, big, <laughs> big themes. Um, and now, but it's not a difficult film at all. Like, no, it's not. It's not at all, really. Anyone can can uh, get can plug into it, I think, and and get a sense of of what it's going for. Um, interestingly, Vim Vendors these days is best known for his documentary work. Uh, his his prominent documentary from the past twenty or so years, the Buena Vista Social Club, the three uh, D movie about dance, Pina. And uh, The Salt of the Earth, which is a film from 2014 I saw about photographer Sebastio Salgado. Uh, Many of his recent dramas, though, are unseen by me anyway. Um, The most – maybe the most recent, I think, starred James Franco and Rachel McAdams called Everything Will Be Fine. It didn't get much of a distribution here, but I think it was partly shot in Quebec. Um, So, yeah, but but his films that – I mentioned Paris, Texas is one that I really liked. He had some films from the 90s I enjoyed, including – which is much for the soundtracks. He's very good at including music in his films, Um, films like Until the End of the World and The End of Violence. But uh, we watched one from the 70s of Vim Vendors that I hadn't seen before, The the American Friend, which is based on – a Patricia Highsmith book, Ripley's Game. Now, we talked a little bit about Patricia Highsmith in our remix um, podcast, uh, and she's been getting some attention lately because her story, Carol, was adapted last year. But uh, this is a story, I mean, anyone who's seen The Talents of Mr. Ripley will know this character. Um, and it's based on, yeah, the, this Patricia Highsmith story is about a guy who is, uh, he is he's, a, uh, well, in this film, any this version anyway, he is, uh, Bruno Gans plays him, he's a framer. And he is uh, framing 
photos or paintings uh, in a in a store in um, Hamburg in Germany and has a wife and a child but he's got a terminal illness and uh, he connects with this American fellow played um, by Dennis Hopper, uh, ostensibly an art dealer, but he knows some bad people in organized crime, and uh, one of the, he might be a bad person himself. Uh, so Bruno Ganz's character gets caught up and in, invited to be part of a hit, and uh, and this this movement into the cr- sort of criminal life compromises his values, and but potentially gives him money that he can leave behind should he pass pass away in some moment soon. And I was amazed in this film how beautiful it was to look at. Of course, it's been re-released. We watched the Criterion edition on Blu-ray. And boy, is it a, a lovely looking film. Yeah, it's it's really been rescued because I saw this film on VHS years ago uh, in the 80s. I, I guess I started seeking out Vin Vendor's films um, you know, after seeing Wings of Desire. And this one had come out in a, in a very early um, VHS thing. I think it might have even been issued by... Uh, I, maybe I'm wrong, but Mike Nesmith from the Monkees had a video company called Pacific Arts, and he reissued his own projects as well as other films. And I think this might have been one of them, but it was in the early days of VHS, so it was not great audio and kind of grainy-looking picture. And it, it's a, it was kind of a dark film or a dark transfer of, a, of kind of a dark film, and and it was really hard to get into at uh-huh. that point, especially when the, the subtitles are hard to read and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, when we switch from English to German to French. Uh, there's probably a couple other languages in there somewhere. Um, and it, it's it's kind of a non-linear take on the Highsmith novel, which is more of a, you know, kind of a straightforward story about her character Ripley, who we first met in The Talented Mr. Ripley, um, which had previously been made into a film called Purple Noon with Elaine Delon. Um, and uh, I think she wrote five of these novels, and he's in kind of a different situation in each one. In this case, he's played by Dennis Hopper, and he's involved in sort of art forgery and and selling fakes and s- various swindles. He, you know, he's 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 a sociopath essentially, um, and uh, although he's a bit warmer as played by Dennis Hopper, I, I don't know how far into the um, sort of the that mental state that he went with him but but he's an intriguing character we've also seen him played of course well jude law in the remake of talented mr ripley and uh, john malkovich in a more straightforward version i think it was his... wasn't it uh matt damon as uh oh because because law played oh that's right sorry yes you're, you're correct matt yeah. damon played ripley my yeah. is my, my my idea was that those actors should have reversed the roles. yes so you're right they, to- they totally should have <laughs> um and i'm not the first person to say that either yeah. but but you know you know take it as it is um and then malkovich plays him in, in a more s- straightforward film based on this same material um in um the american friend uh so this film, it's almost like an anti-thriller in a way. Like, Vengeance is more interested in the characters than he is in the plot, such as it is. And uh, so, you know, I mean, Hopper kind of dances around the fringes of the of the story, even though ostensibly in the book he was the main character. Um, Gans gets more of the screen time as this this art framer who believes he's dying of cancer, which is why he goes into all these sort of criminal... Um, undergoings with varying degrees of success and and of course we get a like wings of desire we get a view of 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 a germany although i think it's hamburg yeah, not it's hamburg. not berlin mm-hmm. um but we get this kind of post-war desolation of uh industrial germany but there's a beauty in it too it's, oh for sure and certainly in the way he uses color like the reds and the yellows and the greens really pop 
in the frame, while all this sort of dark industrial landscape is there, the, the colors really jump out, especially in this new new version. Um, I I uh, I want what you're saying about the uh, about the atmosphere is, is something I wanted to mention, especially in uh, Ebert. Who That's right. this this isn't this isn't actually this film isn't on Ebert's great movies list, but he did review it and he said there's something cheerfully perverse about filming a thriller and then tossing out the parts that would help it make sense, but. <laughs> Tim Vendors has a certain success with the method in The American Friend. He challenges us to admit that we watch and read thrillers as much for atmosphere as for plot. And I think he's right about that. I, I, I don't know that the plot is kind of meandering here, but I enjoy the characters. I really like Bruno Ganz and, uh, and you know, Hopper is, is um, you know, less – more less so than the later film uh, version, Ripley's Game with uh, with Malkovich. You mentioned uh, Hopper's Ripley is is a more supporting role here rather than a central one, but he has a powerful effect on our sort of lead character played by Gans. And uh, but really, you're just spending time with these people in in this place, and uh, and yeah, the thriller aspects are definitely driving the story forward, but but it's not the real reason you watch it. I don't think. No, not at all. And uh, it's you know, vendors kind of wants to get under the skin of this story. There's, I mean, it's not hard to follow. I, I, once again, I have to you know, the the first time I tried to watch it, it didn't really hold me in a way that the new you know, it just helps to have a nice copy of it for one thing. Uh, but the, the new Blu-ray, it just, I was totally enraptured from, from the get-go. I think Ebert gives it three out of four. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think some of its vagaries um, got under his skin a little bit, but, but um, you know, it's, it's not that hard to follow. It's just, it, you have to connect the dots a little bit more than you might if someone had just filmed the novel as written. Um, but it, it, it does kind of get into that whole idea, you know, given that it's, from from the seventies, when when all of a sudden those clearly drawn boundaries between east and west, and uh, you know, good and bad get really really fuzzy, <laughs> and uh, I think the film is a product of that. Um, you know, that, that in fact, you know, here Ripley isn't um, necessarily a villain um, like he would be. You know, which is how he can be taken from the talent of Mr. Ripley, the first uh, story by Highsmith. Uh, and, uh, you know, whether or not good guys or bad guys are, are being uh, targeted is, is hard to say, um, you know, because they're, they're you know, they're, they're ostensibly gangsters and criminals that, that uh, our, our character played by Gans uh, goes after or is, you know, told to go after. Um, so it does get into that kind of gray area. You know, we're talking about Vietnam and Watergate and, uh, you know, I don't know how corrupt politics were in Germany at the time, but uh, you know, if it's anything like the rest of the world, you know, it was a pretty, pretty shaky area on the uh, international scale uh, on the scene. So uh, this film kind of comes out of that a little bit. Um, you're not really sure who to root for. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe Gans's wife, who's uh, who's kind of getting fed up with the subterfuge and secrecy. Yeah, she can uh, tell there's something up with him. He's not just going to Paris for a for for medical reasons yeah. there's other other things going on so i guess she's kind of the stand-in for us in this film that yeah. she's she's uh, you know she's tired of being treated like a like a dummy yeah. by her husband who, who thinks he's doing what's good for his family but you know ultimately is not yeah. um and it you know and it does have those touches of earlier films you mentioned the colors and uh and i think that 
kind of extends back to the work of some directors who actually appear in The American Friend. Uh, Vin Vendors cast a couple of his favorite directors as characters in the film. Uh, and it's kind of a treat to watch them interact with, uh, with uh, the, the actors, the, the other, the main characters in these kind of um, satellite roles yeah. within the film. One of them is uh, Nicholas Ray, which serves as a perfect segue yes. to our next segment. Yeah, Nicholas Ray shows up as, uh, I believe, the artist who creates these paintings or forgeries. Uh, sometimes we're not really sure what he's creating um, for Dennis Hopper to sell on the European market. Um, and, uh, you know, Nicholas Ray was a director who was quite a hot property in the late 40s and through the 50s um, in Hollywood and then kind of goes into a bit of an exile. He he, I think he had uh, some uh, battles with the bottle in the late 60s. I've watched one of the films that he made when he was in the throes of alcoholism, and that was uh, Wind Across the Everglades, which stars Christopher Plummer, a pre-Sound of Music Christopher Plummer, as a uh, investigator for the Audubon Society who's tracking down bird poachers in the Florida Everglades. And it's kind of a mess, uh, but it's kind of fun. Uh, Burl Ives is the leader of the gang that's poaching rare birds uh, to turn into ladies' hats. And uh, there's a big... Uh, knockdown brawl between Burl Ives and Christopher Plummer at the end of the film. So, um, you know, it's worth slogging through the swamp of a movie to get to that final scene. But, and, and Christopher Plummer, it's kind of fun to watch him, you know, pre-sound of music when, you know, he's just right off the Stratford stage, more or less still in full on actor mode. And, um, uh, but, but it's, the movie's kind of a mess and, and, uh, you can see where Ray's career is going. So he, and after that, he kind of goes more into like teaching film and, and working on sort of weird side projects and not so much making features. Um, but of course this young generation of filmmakers comes along and they revere filmmakers like Nicholas Ray, who were so iconoclastic in the fifties. I mean, he's best known for rebel without a cause, um, the James Dean film, which is, you know, this, uh, searing portrait of, of, uh, juvenile delinquency in, uh, in, you know, shot in cinemascope and technicolor and with the full on James Dean potency, uh, that has made it the classic it is today. Um, Ray doesn't necessarily get so much credit for that film's success uh, as I think he deserves. And at that time, he, he, he'd he made film noirs, he'd made westerns, um, he'd made films in pretty much every kind of genre. You know, he, later he'd go on to make some of these kind of big epic uh, war films and, and Roman epics and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, in King of Kings, I think, my, my, uh, you know, I Was a Teenage Jesus. <laughs> it was kind of maybe his last major Hollywood film of note, I think. Um, I'm getting my chronology mixed up in my head here. But um, but clearly, these, this young generation of, uh, of filmmakers in Europe, in France, and, and people like Wim Wenders in, in Germany uh, revered his work and saw it as kind of a signpost um, for them to, to borrow from the things he did that stood out from the, uh, the Hollywood system. And uh, we decided to watch a, a Nicholas Ray film, and we picked uh, Johnny Guitar, which is a, an odd idiosyncratic uh, Western. And uh, we'll talk a bit about that in our next segment. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, and I am host of The Food Podcast. Now, this is not a cooking podcast. We'll talk about the history of food, we'll meet the players in the food world, and we'll explore the ingredients that fill our lives with flavor. Check us out on iTunes and Stitcher. We'd love to hang out with you. So Roger Ebert's great movies list, which is what inspired us to the subject of our uh, uh, our tangential podcast <laughs> uh, explorations today, uh, led us to Nicholas Ray, 
And he actually, I believe, had three three Nicholas Ray movies made his great movies list. Uh, you mentioned uh, Rebel Without a Cause. Uh, also, in a lonely place, which I I watched, um, but uh, but Johnny Guitar was the one that we wanted to definitely focus upon from 1954. This was a film that was unseen by me, so this is really a good reason. This is part of the one of the big reasons that I do want to do this podcast with you, Stephen, is because it gives me a chance to watch the movies that I've heard good things about but have never seen. And boy, was this a treat uh, to watch this. Uh, Ebert said that Johnny Guitar is surely one of the most blatant psychosexual melodramas <laughs> ever to disguise itself in that most commodious of genres, the Western. And he is not wrong. It's a, it's a Western starring Joan Crawford. She plays Vienna. Who runs? She runs a, a a casino. It's more of a bar, really, on the outskirts of some western town. She's invested in it, expecting the railroad to come through so that she'll make a fortune with the joint when the railroad arrives. Now, there are some references to how she man- managed to earn the money to pay for this place, and uh, she doesn't get specific about it, but you can kind of see that she might have done some things, uh, some things that might be considered difficult, uh, you know, with her life um, in order to get the money to pay for this place. She's a tough lady. She is not kidding around. She knows what she wants. Um, but this place, Vienna's, is not popular with the family that runs the local town, the called the family called the McIvers. They own the town, uh, and they don't like her or her men, including a guy named the Dancing Kid, played by Scott Brady. Um, now, the stagecoach, local stagecoach, is held up, and a man is killed. Now, his sister, Emma Small, Mercedes McCambridge, uh, she leads the McIvers into Vienna's place. She's basically in charge. Like, all these men uh, are basically, <laughs> like, either they're afraid of her or, or something. I mean, she's really the one who is making the decisions. Um, and then they find at Vienna's place a man named Johnny Guitar, played by Sterling Hayden. He's just shown up. The guitar crosses back, and he's supposedly the musical, you know, he's been high for his musical skills. He plays the guitar and he's going to be offering entertainment at this joint. But the fact of the matter is that he and Vienna have a background, a history, and he's also very skilled with a gun. Um, And now the dancing kid, who is part of Vienna's group of men, he takes offense to Johnny Guitar, and uh, and so there's all these like little struggles, power struggles going on, and uh, and so it goes. Um, the, Ebert says the film is about the sexual energy between Crawford and McCambridge, who apparently hated each other on set. <laughs> Hard and to I, believe. And I've heard that that <laughs> Nicholas Ray encouraged that conflict. Um, now, but I, you know what? They they aren't in too many scenes together, uh, Crawford and McCambridge. They definitely have a finale, which is very impressive. But but uh, really it. It's, it's the the tone of the thing is pitched at this moment where it's it's the kind of thing wherein you feel like any moment a fight could break out or someone will break into tears or someone will get kissed. It's just like it's <laughs> like it doesn't matter who the characters are. They're all talking and and interacting in a way that's very high melodrama and that makes it super entertaining uh i love the scene where crawford she's wearing a white dress she plays the piano and stares down this posse that has shown up looking for her men um and they're all wearing black and she's wearing white and they're all holding their guns and she calls them all miserable hypocrites <laughs> i mean it's it's amazing it's amazing oh, yeah. it's a real it's a it was a real treat to see this film yeah well the, the use of color is so strong in this film which is why i sort of connected to the American friend, which Nicholas Ray actually appears in as the artist slash forger. Um, 
you know, so Vinders was obviously, you know, adored Ray's work. So he includes him in the film, but also borrows from what he's learned from his films by using colors so strategically. Um, and here it's just, you know, the red scarf and the yellow shirt that, uh, that Joan Crawford wears in the big finale. It's just such a striking uh, image. And I think, you know, I think that's what they used on the posters as well. Um, and yeah, it's pitched at such a high key and, and, you know, supposedly, um, you know, Mercedes McCambridge's character is repelled by her desire for the dancing kids. So she just, instead of like going after him romantically, she goes after him with a posse. She, she'd rather see him dead than uh, acknowledge her feelings for him. So, so there's all these really deep seated uh, soap opera currents running through the, the film and, and, and the men are all fairly useless. It's true. Throughout the, you know, the course of the film, um, you know, and you've got uh, the Dancing Kids pa- uh, group includes, uh, uh, you know, a, a kid named Turkey who thinks he's a hot shot until the Johnny Guitar blows his gun away. And then, yeah, and Ernest Borgnine is in there as well. Terrific phallic uh, symbolism there, and and um, and yeah, Ernest Borgnine is as the tough guy that uh, you know Johnny sh- teaches a lesson to, um, and he's like completely venal, uh, untrustworthy, unloyal character it's just i love borgnine popping up in these 50s films it doesn't matter if it's uh you know as fatso and from here to eternity or whatever he he really invests his roles with some real vigor and and spite <laughs> and, and and this is one of one of those roles that really stands out um i don't know how much truth there is in this but i i i've read that it was a big influence on uh sergio leone's once upon a time in the west um there's the whole sub theme of the fact that the railroad is coming through um, which is going to make, you'd think would make the town more valuable, but but um, the family that run the town actually don't want the railroad to come through. No, they figure they'll be all like shoved out by uh, yeah, by, by new people. Their, and power, I guess, their power will be gone and, yeah. and uh, Vienna's kind of counting on it. Yeah. yeah, Vienna is like one of the first people to show up and try to stake her claim and take advantage of this situation, this economic change. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's funny how the film, like the opening act is basically all in Vienna's place people talking and it's all feels very sort of studio bound. And, and I can see where Ebert said that the film had a cheap Republic kind of vibe to it. Cause you, you do get the sense that the budget is pretty small, but there are some location, there's some location cinematography, which is actually kind of impressive. Like there's scenes where there, there's a mine going on, there's explosions in the Hills and, and dust and dirt falling down upon, upon horse riders. And, and some of that stuff actually feels, I mean, if not, you know, uh, realistic, I was not a word I would use in association with this, but, uh, but the, they do choose their locations well. And the, and some of that stuff works quite well, I think. Um, but really, yeah, it's about the people in this film and about their, their, uh, gnashing at each other constantly uh sterling hayden is great uh i really love his sort of laconic (laughs) sort of uh, johnny guitar and he's he's a pretty tough guy and clearly he's got a a past but but when he tries to get together with vienna and tries to convince her that they need to be together even though they have been apart for five years um it's it's wonderful it's maybe my favorite part of the film because he's just he's basically on his knees uh, trying <laughs> to get her to, but she's changed and he's changed and the world is hard and, you know. And, <laughs> and all the men are emasculated. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, Hayden is terrific. I mean, I can watch him in anything. I think, you know, I think of, well, Dr. Strangelove, of course. Of course, yeah. And uh, another Kubrick film, uh, The Killing, he's fantastic as the guy who's trying to put together this racetrack robbery, which just falls apart at, at every turn. Um, you know, he, he's good in so many of these kinds of films. Um and, you know, and 
I think of, you know, there's other actors that played similar kind of character. Richard Widmark is a, is, is a factor in a lot of these films around that time. And, and, um, and also Robert Ryan, um, who is in another Nicholas Ray film I love, uh, On Dangerous Ground, which has a great Bernard Herrmann score. It's one of the few film noirs actually scored by Bernard Herrmann, which is why it stands out as a, and he, and Robert Ryan plays a cop who's just totally possessed by hatred for mankind. And it's really worth seeing. And, mm. you know, he, he finds himself out of his element when he chases a suspect into the wilderness and he's a city cop who suddenly is out in the wild and uh, doesn't really know how to function in, in that environment. And it's, it's a terrific film. Actually, I share a birthday with Nicholas Ray. There's another, we have the same birthday. So hey, I, was, I had an affinity for his work. Um, you know, I, I I don't know if that means anything. That we should, we should, we're both Leos from from August seventh, but but uh, you know, I, I found that out long after I, I'd already been admiring his work. So I just thought that was a nice little. Yeah, I don't. I nod. don't. I'm a Leo as well, but from July 25th, I don't think I share my birthday with any directors, <laughs> which is too bad. You never um, know. But yeah. but you also watched um, uh, another great uh, Nicholas Ray film and and. One of his uh, peak film noir, and that's uh, on uh, uh, in a lonely place. Yeah, yeah. I, I figured since it was on Ebert's list, and uh, and I wanted to try to see a little more of Ray before we sat down to talk about him. Uh, and of course, I'd seen Rebel Without a Cause. I'd seen it when I was a teenager, and many times since. Uh, but uh, I hadn't seen in a lonely place, and and I'm also glad to see it now because there is this thing going on called Noir Vember. I don't know if you've seen this oh, on social no, media, I have not. but basically the idea to see a noir film one every day of November, <laughs> oh, which might be a bit too much for me to manage. I don't know if I could do that, but I'm happy to have seen this because it's definitely a noir film. Uh, Humphrey Bogart is Dixon Steele. He's sort of an embittered Hollywood screenwriter, lives in Santa Monica. He hasn't had a hit movie for some time. And uh, he gets, he connects with a with a uh, coat check girl at his local watering hole, his favorite place to hang out in in uh, L.A. And uh, it's an opportunity. He has an opportunity to maybe do some work adapting a book, but he hasn't read the book. But she discovers that she has, so he invites her home to basically tell him the story of the book. Uh, but when he realizes he's not going to get anywhere with her, and and the the book sounds like total trash, he basically kicks her out. Uh, then he discovers the following day. That that uh, she's been killed, she's been murdered, and uh, he gets taken down to the uh, police station to be interrogated because he's basically the last person to have seen her alive. Now, his neighbor uh, gives him an alibi, played his neighbor, Laurel, played by Gloria Graham, who she's an actor who I, I guess I guess I probably best know from uh, It's a Wonderful Life. She played the uh, the woman, the young woman who was interested in Jimmy Stewart and then in the nightmarish scenario wound up becoming a, a prostitute. Um, and uh, but this is the point where where In a Lonely Place definitely becomes a noir. It's it's uh, Bogey is really good playing this character who is kind of conflicted. He's basically a decent guy, but he's he's sour and he's he's been embittered by the fact that he I guess his professional life hasn't turned out the way he thought it would. And he's got a violent temper and so when he and Gloria, his uh, or Laurel, I should say, is the character Laurel uh, from his neighbor, get together, and of course they fall in love, and, uh, and and they start this love affair. But she starts to get afraid because she starts seeing his brittle ego. She starts seeing his violent temper, and uh, and because it's Bogey, we can see his appeal and his charm. But he is really the quintessential abusive guy, and this is a tragic yeah. love story about how violence and anger can sour. Uh, love and uh, it is uh, 
you know, and, and there is a um, there's a line from this screenplay that I, I've heard and known for years, but I had no idea it was from here. And it is, I was born when you kissed me. I died when you left me. I lived a few weeks while you loved me. You know, so that's what <laughs> yes. that's the kind of tone that we're dealing with with here. And uh, yeah, it's a tight, like 90 minute, dense and intense drama tragedy. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm really I was really impressed. I can very much understand why Ebert included on his great movies list. Yeah, it's kind of like I kind of look at it as like the flip side of Sunset Boulevard, where the main character, you know, there the main character, William Holden, is is also a screenwriter who, uh, you know, gets led down a, a dark path. But he's not he's not uh, he's he's more of a young hopeful when we meet him in Sunset Boulevard. Here's the flip side of that, um, where we meet the jaded bitter uh professional played by humphrey bogart and uh it is it is one of my favorite bogart performances and and i like the fact that you know i like the noirs that aren't necessarily about a detective Mm -hmm, uh, for sure you know which really narrows the field quite a bit because quite often they're kind of a police procedural that gets pumped up with with uh great visuals and stark cinematography and all that kind of thing but uh but but here we, we we get a story that uses all the the noir style, but for a very different kind of uh, kind of melodrama, and it's 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 fairly intense. It really this film gets under your skin. Um, it was also the you, the inspiration for a Joy Division song, so that that, that gives you an idea of how bleak <laughs> things <laughs> things get with this film. And uh, and Gloria Graham is terrific for here. I, I can watch her in about anything. If if you haven't seen it, The Big Heat. Um, the Fritz Lang uh, noir, which is, it might be, I, it's you know, Glenn Ford plays a detective. Also, um, the Big Heat is also on Ebert's uh, great movies list. That so, might, yeah, we're so going to do go. more of these shows, I think. So yeah. we'll put that on the list. Sure, um, I've seen it several times, but I can watch that anytime. And uh, Gloria Graham plays a, a, a mobster's mall who um, gets hot coffee tossed into her face by Lee Marvin. So wow, it's 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 pretty. Pretty intense. Actually, I think he may, may even like hit her with the coffee pot. It's it's pretty brutal. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, but that that is one of the most like brutal in your face face of of, of that genre. So, um, but but here it's it's really kind of a ripping the lid off the film business kind of story. And uh, you know, it it takes a while to wash out of your system after you've seen it. It's pretty. It it's just pretty. Uh, Infectious, I think. Yeah, not in a good way. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, <laughs> I am with you there. Um, so, so uh, we've got one more uh, from from Ebert's list of films to discuss, uh, and I think the connection might be uh, that that it's a it's a Samuel Fuller film, and he was a uh, director who sometimes appeared in films as an actor. So, just like Nicholas Ray. So, I think that that makes for that'll be their next segment. So for our last uh, film in our tangential great list, uh, great films list show, um, we mentioned Samuel Fuller at the end of the last segment. He appears in The American Friend, which we talked about earlier, which also included uh, Nicholas Ray in, in, a, in a small part. And Sam Fuller shows up uh, as a cigar chomping mobster, <laughs> as he's wont to do. Uh, never, never far without his cigar. Um, and uh, Sam Fuller was, was a very uh, potent director of... of crime films and war films from the the late 40s up into the uh the early 60s and then his career kind of peters out um as uh, some of his allies in hollywood either die or step down at the studios or whatever and he made a series of independent projects of varying degrees of quality and also shows up as a character actor in a number of films um the american friend comes to mind where he plays this uh this gangster um also he shows up uh in uh steven spielberg's 1941 uh <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and lots of other places, but um, those those two really 
pop into my mind. And uh, we thought, well, continuing our tangential uh, approach to this show, we figured, well, we did a Nicholas Ray film uh, or two. Why not uh, talk about a Sam Fuller film? Now, uh, the the one we chose is one from late in his career. It's one that I wanted to revisit, and uh, Carson had never seen it, and it uh, was recently reconstructed. It's called The Big Red One from uh, the late 70s. I think 1980 is when it finally came out. Um, and it was uh, entirely based on his own experiences as uh, as an infantryman in the Second World War, as a member of uh, the First Infantry Battalion, the Big Red One of the title, and uh, and it's 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 pretty much taken directly from his own experiences. He kept a detailed diary through the war. Uh, I've seen pictures of pages of it, um, uh, where he includes you know doodles of of people along the way, and and kept a pretty good track of of his experiences. Um, you know, landing in Africa, then invading Sicily, and then eventually taking part in D-Day uh, and surviving. Uh, and as he says uh, about this film, this is a film about the survivors because war war stories are always told by the survivors. And um, so this is a, a story of the crew that that made it through the war with him, uh, made it through to, uh, to VE Day. And uh, it's a pretty compelling film. At a time when war films had kind of fallen off the radar. Um, I guess things like uh, Bridge Too Far uh, had cost a lot of money and maybe not made a lot of money. Um, you know, there's there's a long stretch where where uh, we weren't you know, like like with westerns where there's a long dry spell in terms of getting western films. Uh, the same happened to uh, to war films, and uh, this was kind of a rare example from the late '70s that's fairly personal in its in its approach to telling the story of these these young soldiers and uh, sort of the more experienced sergeant that kind of helps them survive this brutal conflict. Yeah, it's funny. The sergeant's never actually named the, the Lee Marvin character. He's just the sergeant. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, some characters come in and out, but the core of the, of the people we get to know, there's a sergeant, there's Private Griff, played by Mark Hamill, who, uh, of course, this, I think, was maybe his first big role after Star Wars. So that, one, one of them, for sure, yeah. Yeah, so that was kind of uh, a novelty and something that uh, that I think helped promote the film. He's, he's, he plays a character who's reluctant to kill at the beginning of the film, but as we go along, he sort of, he, he gets either numbed or toughened to the possibility that he has to shoot people. Um, and uh, there's Private Zab, played by Robert Carradine. He's uh, he's kind of I guess the filmmaker's proxy, given that he's always smoking a cigar. Yeah, well, um, he, he he well, and his name is based on Sam Fuller. Fuller is in his family last name. It's you know his family came from Eastern Europe. Oh, so, okay. So there you go. Zab is actually an abbreviation of his of his real last name, which now eludes me. It's like Zabenicek or something like that. Oh, okay. So, so it's actually, yeah. So, and the fact that the cigar and the fact that he writes crime novels, you know, pretty, sure. much, pretty much. Yeah. And then he narrated, he, he narrates parts of the yes, film exactly. as well. Um, and there's the Italian American soldier, private Vinci, uh, played by Bobby DiCicco. Yeah. Bobby DiCicco. And, uh, and private Johnson played by Kelly Ward. Uh, and we also get to know a German soldier who has, they cross a number of times without really knowing it, played by Siegfried Rauch. He's sort of the sergeant's opposite number across the enemy lines. Uh, now, Ebert remarked on the film's anecdotal structure in his great movies list. Uh, he included the big red one. He said, the squad fights in so many places and they stay together in one piece for so long and experiences so many key events of World War II from the invasion of Europe to the liberation of the Nazi death camps that these characters are meant to be symbols of all the infantrymen in all the battles. But Fuller, who fought in the First Division, seems determined to keep his symbols from illustrating the message. They fight. They are frightened. Men kill, other men are killed. What matters is if you're still alive. I don't cry because the guy 
over there got hit, Fuller said in an interview. I cry because I'm going to get hit next. Uh, which, yeah, is pretty much as you say. It's about the survivors. And and you can see how this film was an influence on Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan. Apparently Spielberg was a, was a big fan yeah. of Fuller's work. Um, though it do, doesn't I, – I, don't, I didn't find that uh, the big red one – quite indulged in Spielberg's weakness for sentiment. Um, I mean, this has some really weird, interesting stuff (laughs) going on in it, but I wouldn't call it sentimental. Um, The big red one takes a whole new meaning when in the scene where a soldier gets a testicle blown off and the sergeant finds it, he holds it up to the camera and says, it's okay, you don't need both of them and tosses (laughs) it away. This is why God gave you two. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Um, And then the sergeant is, is wounded while fighting in Italy and while in the hospital, bed, he's basically the victim of a sexual assault by an amorous Italian guy who won't stop kissing him. (laughs) And I never thought I'd see a scene of Lee Marvin being kissed by another guy. It's actually a hell of a scene. (laughs) Um, You know, and then there's the moment in Belgium where the woman who's taking care of them or feeding them food recognizes that there's a spy in their midst, an infiltrator. And there's a lot of, I guess what I'm saying is that in a film which structurally is kind of anecdotal and there's there's a, uh, you know, it's it's in many ways a standard tradition traditional World War II movie, um, there's a lot of surprises and a lot of interesting quirks, I think, that raise it and make it special um, in a lot of ways that really surprised me. Now, we saw the reconstructed version from 2004, which includes a lot of footage that was left out of the theatrical version. It's some 40 minutes longer than the theatrical version. I don't know what the difference between them more. I don't, I can't really, watching it, I never got a sense of stuff that felt superfluous. It's all just part of the ongoing story. Yeah, I listened to the, uh, there's a commentary on it with uh, Richard Schickel, who, um, film critic, film writer, who uh, oversaw the restoration. He was friends with Fuller and, um, you know, had had his notes, I guess, and they, they had the outtakes, thankfully survived in, in good condition and they were able to reconstruct it and, and you know, some of the scenes you can sort of tell that they might have been cut for superfluousness, but but they they still work in, in basically underlining Fuller's feelings that, that that being in a war is like ninety percent boredom and then ten percent sheer terror. Right, and um, and that's kind of how it is for these guys. You know, they have these weird little interludes, like in the you know when they're staying in an insane asylum in Belgium or or just lounging on the beach in in Algiers or whatever. Um, uh, and and then just these moments of sheer horror. You know, with you know, being trapped by Germans, you know, who are faking to be dead around a, a tank and and the and, giant and so cross. On. Yeah, that's a pretty intense scene. Yeah, there were, it just happens to be at a site where uh, Lee Marvin's character killed the last soldier of the First World War at, at the, in the in the black and white prologue um, of the film, and uh, it is episodic in nature because that's the nature of, uh, of of war, and I think that's what. Fuller kind of hated about other war films that they they you know they had to have an arc or whatever when in fact it's it's just one damn thing after another <laughs> really when and and, and uh, so it's I guess it's realistic in in that sense in that it's not trying to you know have any character come to any huge realizations although I guess Griff uh, oddly enough if you watch enough Fuller films there's always a character named Griff pretty much um, as a, an homage to I guess his buddy from the Second World War um, you know Mark Hamill's character learns. The difference between killing and murdering, I suppose, when he mows down a, a German soldier hiding in an oven at a concentration camp, and it's a pretty brutal scene. Um, but but for the most part, uh, you know, I don't think Lee Marvin's any different at the end of the film than he is at the start, because uh, you know he's he's learned how to survive, and that's that's the thing that matters. And I guess um, that was kind of 
uh, Fuller's comment on war films, I think in the Ebert review, he mentions that uh, Truffaut said something to the effect that uh, all move, all war movies are pro-war because they show it as being exciting. And uh, and uh, Fuller refuted that, saying, you know, it's just like, well, you know, it's not so exciting for the son of a bitch that just got shot. So, um, you know, he, he thinks that it should show it as terrifying and horrific and... Yeah, I think this film does that. Uh, and I think sure. this film does that, but yeah. but uh, also with a lot of humor and a, a lot of really interesting uh, stylistic flourishes that are very much in that kind of the using the camera as a fist approach of Sam Fuller. Well, that wraps up another edition of Lends Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook. And I am Karsten Knox. And, uh, of course, you can always find the show on iTunes or Stitcher or every other Tuesday on CKDU 88.1 FM in Halifax. And uh, also online at uh, via streaming via CKDU's website. Um, also, if you want to get in touch with us, we have a Twitter handle, at LensMeYourEars. Uh, we have a Facebook page and also uh, an email address, LensMeYourEarsPodcast at gmail.com. And I want to say thank you to CKDU for hosting our uh, our recording session and to putting putting us on the air. If you're listening to us on CKDU, uh, thanks so much for listening. And uh, of course, the Village Soundcast Network for for their help uh, in getting us into the internet. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music, tour dates, and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.